Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, we are going to talk about the economic impact the Israel-Hamas war could have on the Middle Eastern and North African economies. This largely comes from feedback that we have received on our podcast that they would like to hear about what we think will happen in the region. To start off this conversation, I want to be clear about one thing. We're going to be talking about economics, but they are secondary to the great humanitarian crisis that is being experienced currently in Israel. Many lives have been lost in the Gaza Strip and in Israel proper, and many more have been severely injured in the last month of conflict. The IAF continues to hold those affected by this conflict, particularly those who are innocent, in our thoughts and our prayers. This week, to talk about the region, I am joined by two colleagues at the IAF, Garbus Aradian, who is the chief economist for the MENA region. I think this is the second time I've had you on, Garbus, and Yvonne Bergarda, who is a senior research analyst in the region for us. Thanks for joining us, and it's great to see both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, Garbus, let's start it off. You've been doing a lot of work lately, you and Yvonne, trying to break down what's happening here. Now, I'm going to ask you about the war in Gaza and Israel broader, I guess, the possible fallout for the MENA region and the economic impact. Obviously, there are a lot of assumptions that have to be built in here. I know you've tried to play out different scenarios and how they could play out. And of course, look, this is really an uncertain environment. So I give all those caveats because what you're about to say will be informative and helpful. But of course, in the end, like you may be wrong. And that's because you have to just try to take some assumptions on that. So but right now, as you see it, how do you think of the economic impact of what's been happening in Israel? Thank you. As you highlighted, I mean, the economic impact depends on the assumptions that we make. For this purpose, we prepare two scenarios. Our baseline scenario assumes that Israel-Hamas war will remain confined to the Gaza Strip and will not widen into a larger regional war. So this scenario, we give probability more than 50%, at least 60 or 70%, based on recent development, including Hezbollah's statement. Hezbollah is the Iran proxy strong militia in Lebanon, in which uh, their leader indicated indirectly that he will not join the fighting beyond border limited attacks. In the other scenario, which we consider it as pessimistic scenario, and the probability, of course, is much lower than 50%. We give it around 30%. We assume that the war in Gaza spirals into a prolonged regional war that leads to a significant decline in global supply of oil. Of course, this pessimistic scenario has major implications on economic activity in the region, including particularly the countries which are directly involved and also neighboring countries. To start, I would focus on Israel first. In our baseline scenario, we said the war will have limited impact on the Israeli economy. And the impact will be mainly through strained labor supply. As everyone knows, Israel mobilized 350,000 reservists 
This represents 8% of the labor force. And this could put much pressure on economic activity in different sectors of the economy, particularly the technology sector, which has been the main driver of growth in Israel. But at the outside, I would like to say that the Israeli economy is robust and healthy. It's based on healthy foundation in the sense that they have ample foreign exchange assets in the form of official reserves, which is around 200 billion. That's about 40% of Israel's economy. Inflation has been low over the past several years. The current account in the balance of payment has been in significant surplus. The fiscal deficit was modest and their debt is also considered low, particularly external debt. Moreover, Israel has been resilient to previous shocks, including the Yom Kippur War in 1973, which lasted for a few days or weeks, also the 1967 war, and also the different shocks over the past few decades, including the financial crisis in 2009 and COVID-2020. It shows that the Israeli economy has been resilient in the sense that growth was not impacted significantly as in other emerging or advanced economies. In this baseline scenario with limited war, where our baseline assumes the war will last between one month to six months, as assumed by Bank of Israel governor. Assuming this is the valid uh, scenario, the impact on the economy will be small. We estimated that growth in this year would be only one percentage point lower than the projections we had prior to the war. And also in 2024, it could be 0.5 percentage point lower than projections prior to the war. We've seen some pressure on the exchange rate. However, it was limited. Only there has been 4% depreciation of the Israeli currency. The reason for that is that the Bank of Israel, the central bank, has enough foreign exchange reserve to intervene in the market. There has been some modest capital outflows. So if the war continues for at least six months, we would see further deterioration in capital inflows. However, expansion of the war, which will include Hezbollah, and most likely Iran, could cause greater damage to Israelis' infrastructure. In such a scenario, we expect a contraction in Israeli economy, something in the range about 2 to 5% contraction in 2024. That will depend on the duration of the war. Moving to Lebanon, I will focus in case of Lebanon on the pessimistic scenario because in the baseline scenario, the impact again, like Israel, will be very small and mostly it will be in the form of less tourism. Whether it's Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, all these countries rely heavily on tourism income. So even in the baseline scenario, we will have significant decline in tourism receipts. But moving to the pessimistic scenario for Lebanon, this could destroy the Lebanese already drained economy. In the past four years, Lebanon's economy contracted almost by 45%. 
such a war on Lebanon, which will destroy the remaining weak infrastructure, could lead to a contraction at least by 30% and deplete the foreign exchange reserves. Do you mean 30% on top of the 45%? Yes, 30% decline because all infrastructure will be destroyed. Uh, I mean, most likely in this prolonged scenario of expansionary war, Israel is likely to bombard not only the south, but also some of the major cities in Lebanon. And that could devastate the economy. Jordan is a proximity country which has very good relationship with Israel. They have peace. However, there is an indirect effect on the Jordanian economy. As 60% of the population of Jordan are of Palestinian descent. This could raise some social unrest and most likely the West Bank and to some extent Palestinians in Jordan would like to participate in the mod. That's the low probability scenario. So in such a pessimistic scenario, we would see tourism plunging. Tourism used to account for about 13% of GDP. Private investment will fall. Exports will fall. And the Jordanian economy could contract in 2024 by 1% to 2%. This contraction is not as much as Israel because we're assuming officially Jordan will not enter the war, but there are indirect effects on its economy. The other country which will also be impacted by the war is Iran. Assuming that the baseline scenario prevails with limited attacks, in such a scenario, Iran will not participate, although some of its proxy militias in Lebanon, in Syria, and Iraq would take part in this war, but on a limited scale. The impact on the Iranian economy could be through the channel of enforcement of U.S. sanctions, lower crude oil production, lower oil revenue, current account could deteriorate, and the official reserves, which is very small, I mean, we heard from in different views in the U.S. that Iran has 70 billion official reserves. This is not true. The available official reserves of Iran is only 10 to 12 billion. The rest of the reserves are frozen in major banks and some of the countries. So the available Reserves for for Iran are limited, and with such a crisis, they will decline significantly. Of course, also the economy would suffer. The exchange rate in the parallel market will depreciate further, and inflation could exceed 50%, which is currently running around 40%. In the pessimistic scenario, if Iran is heavily involved in the war along with Hezbollah, then you could see a devastation of the Iranian economy a contraction of at least 6 to 10%, and it's likely that you could see some change in the political system in Iran because unemployment rate in Iran is already very high. It's about 15%, and such a war could devastate the economy, increase unemployment, and deplete the foreign exchange reserves available. Okay, Garbus, thank you very much. And you were very clear that you're trying to see what would happen under pessimistic scenarios, which, as you said, are not the baseline. 
but I think that that's really helpful. So Yvonne, let me bring you in here because I know you've been doing some work as well as Garbus on Egypt, which is a country that is another neighbor of Israel. It's the country, obviously, where there's been a lot of pressure being put on them to see if they can take refugees, essentially, from Gaza. Egypt has its own economic issues that had nothing to do with this crisis, but maybe you can kind of put a little context around what was going on in Egypt and then also add on using kind of garbage scenarios. Thanks, Clay. So as you mentioned, uh, Egypt's economy was already in pretty unstable footing even before the, the current conflict in Gaza. It had been running pretty persistent high twin current account and fiscal deficits basically since the great financial crisis. These deficits have been in large part financed by portfolio flows, but during the pandemic, Egypt saw pretty large non-resident outflows that created a pretty significant financing gap. This gap was filled in large part by official lending from both the multilaterals and from GCC countries. A big pillar of this lending was the IMF program that was agreed upon in December of 2022 for around US $3 billion. Unfortunately, that program was postponed before the first review due to the lack of progress on two key structural benchmarks, namely the floating of the exchange rate and the privatization of state-owned assets. This uh, really limited also other official lending into the country, creating a pretty delicate financing picture. On top of that, Egypt currently has double-digit inflation. I believe it was 38% in September. It has high interest rates. There's a lot of pressure on the exchange rate with markets expecting a large devaluation. It has declining foreign exchange reserves. It has very high debt. And I think more importantly, it has a pretty high debt amortization in the next couple of years. So that was the, the situation prior to the war in Gaza. We think that uh, the, the current conflict will only worsen the overall picture. Just kind of feeding off of what Garba said, I'm going to focus a lot on our baseline scenario, which is that the war remains constrained to the Gaza Strip and doesn't expand to a more regional conflict. I'll focus on a few key indicators. So we can start off with the, with the current account. We, we forecast that the current account will widen to about 3% of GDP in fiscal year 24. This will happen both because of an increase in the trade balance deficit as well as falling services. On the trade balance, on the export side, Egyptian hydrocarbons are highly reliant on uh, re-exports of gas that are imported from Israel. The pipeline that connects Israel to Egypt is in southern Israel and has pretty much been shut down since the beginning of the conflict. This has meant that there's been limited imports into Egypt, which will further hurt uh, exports. Unfortunately, this also came on the back of a pretty strong heat wave that affected Egypt during the summer. So this heat wave caused domestic demand of energy to increase significantly and exports were halted for about two months. So we definitely see that in the next fiscal year, at least for the first half of the fiscal year, we will be seeing uh, pretty significant decreases in Egyptian exports of hydrocarbons. And on the service side, the Sinai Peninsula is a pretty big hub for tourism in Egypt. Obviously, the proximity of the Sinai to Gaza will eventually hurt tourism. We haven't really seen tourism fall much in October, but we expect to see falling numbers come in November and in December. We could also see a fall in transportation receipts as goods are rerouted away from the Suez Canal. So that, that's our situation with the current account deficit. We're also pretty concerned about inflows into the country. We see a pretty big possibility of social unrest in Egypt. Public support for Gaza is very strong. There's also been some anger on the perceived failure of Egyptian authorities to support Gaza. So this kind of anger towards what's happening plus the current discontent with the economy, could lead to, to social unrest. This could lead to political uncertainty, which will only add to the current economic uncertainty, hurting investment into the country, both through FDI and, and portfolio flows. 
We have already seen in the past month that the three rating agencies have downgraded Egypt. So this only accentuates the importance of official lending, especially the, the renewal or the continuation of, of the IMF program. Finally, my last point will be that if there's a situation where there's social unrest, this could lead to potentially large protests. Uh, this could lead to infrastructure damage, slower growth, lower tax revenue, and potentially higher fiscal deficits. So this is our, our outlook for Egypt. As mentioned earlier, this is based on our baseline scenario and is highly dependent on how long the war in Gaza lasts or if it expands into a more regional conflict. If that is the case, and if it does expand into a regional conflict, Egypt could be further hurt because the import bill will increase significantly. Egypt is highly reliant on imports of fuel. If the conflict were to expand and oil prices were to increase, we could see a pretty significant jump in the import bill for Egypt. Furthermore, you could see further falling tourism, you'll see greater financing needs, and all of this will, will hinder Egypt's economic prospects. Thanks, Yvonne. That was actually very helpful and actually interesting because of the concerns that you raise about Egypt, even in a very narrowly focused where the war does not spread at all. But Garbus, I'm going to come back to you, and, and it's going to be about something that you hinted at in, in your answer, which is the importance of commodities. Obviously, the Middle East, particularly the Gulf countries, is known for, you mentioned it when you were talking about Iran, known for commodities oil, natural gas. Do you see both an impact on these commodity prices because of a narrow, your kind of baseline scenario, and also obviously your pessimistic scenario? Yeah, definitely, whether we assume the baseline scenario, limited war or pessimistic scenario, expansion of the war, it has major implication on commodity prices. So let me start with the oil prices, which is the main one, because historically, oil prices movement led to the same movement in the same direction for food and base metals, meaning that higher oil prices were significantly positively correlated with higher food prices and base metal prices, because oil is used as an input for uh, production of certain food and uh, base metals. Now, in the past four weeks, we have seen some volatility in oil prices. Initially, oil traders were concerned that the violence could intensify and spread, possibly including Hezbollah and Iran, which will threaten the oil supply from the region. However, these fears have eased in recent days and brand crude prices have declined from $91 on October 19th to around $80 now. Today, it's hovering around $80, which is close to where it was prior to the outbreak of the violence. This decline, of course, is attributed to easing concerns over potential supply disruption in the Middle East and, of course, weaker global demand for oil in the context of slowing global economy. In this scenario, we also have projections for non-fuel commodities, which includes food and base metals. The movement in the non-fuel commodities also will be consistent with the movement in oil prices. If oil prices are moderating or declining, we will see a small decline in food prices. So we're projecting food prices will continue their decline. This year is estimated a decline of 8%. However, it was from a higher base of increase in 2022. 
2024, we will have a small decline of 2%. Base metals also this year are estimated to decline by 10%. Next year, they could continue to decline by something around 4%. Moving to the pessimistic scenario, we assume that the war in Gaza spirals into a prolonged regional war that leads to a significant decline in global supply, particularly if Iran causes significant disruption in shipments of oil in the Strait of Hormuz. Strait of Hormuz lies between Oman and Iran in the Gulf, and it's around 20 kilometer wide. The impact of such a potential disruption of supply of oil could be uncertain whether it will reduce global supply of oil by 5 million barrels a day or 10 million barrels a day on average. And that depends on the duration of the disruption of shipment. It's highly unlikely that the duration of the disruption of oil flow in the Gulf will be more than one or two months. However, this is uncertain. While it is difficult to predict by how much and for how long oil prices would rise, for simplicity, in our pessimistic scenario, we assume that prices surge to an average of $120. This is an increase from an average prices of oil of $83 in 2024, uh, in 2023, sorry, to $120. That's an increase of $35 per barrel, which is equivalent to 40% increase. All right, $120 a barrel, that sounds pretty high to me. And that also sounds like it could have a much greater impact on the global economy. Garbus, I know you're actually working on a paper right now on this very issue. So maybe you can kind of explain what the spillover effects could be to the global economy, not just to the region. This is a very interesting question, uh, Clay. But before I address this, I would like also to say something on the implication of higher oil prices and food prices. Of course, when oil prices increase, by around 40%, you would see global food prices increasing. And this has major implications on many developing countries which rely heavily on importation of food. So you would see that reflected in higher inflation, increase in poverty. So the implication could be very severe, particularly to some emerging and developing countries. I have in mind Pakistan, Egypt, Bangladesh, and some of the African countries. Now, moving to the implication of higher oil prices on the global economy, whether it's advanced or emerging economies. In this paper that we prepared, we made a comparison of the impact of the surge in oil prices in 1973, that was a major rise in oil prices, which increased by three, four times, of course, from few dollars, which led to a global recession. And the other shock was in 1979 during the Iranian revolution, where it led to disruption of oil from Iran, around three, four million barrels a day. There has been several other shocks. However, over time, we saw most advanced and emerging economies moving gradually away from oil as the main energy source. The move has been more to natural gas, to renewable, 
hydroelectricity, and in some countries like nuclear energy in France or other countries. And also there has been some structural changes in the sense that most countries, the services sector as percentage of its economy continued to decline. Of course, we know that services sector is less oil intensive than manufacturing sector or other sectors in or construction. So we see this evolution that services now in the 1990s, the 2000s, and particularly in the past 10 years, account for a much larger share of GDP. So all these factors, the intensity use of oil in energy, which has declined in most major countries and also emerging economies, being more efficient in the use of oil and the decline of manufacturing and construction as share of GDP led to less impact of oil prices on advanced economies and emerging economies. And the way to estimate that we examined different samples for different periods of time, and we calculated the elasticity of oil. What we mean by elasticity of oil is the percentage change in global growth vis-a-vis the percentage change in oil prices. We found that this elasticity has declined from something around 0.03% to 0.01%, meaning that 10% increase in oil prices in the 1970s or 80s reduced global growth by 0.3 percentage points, while now a 10% increase in oil prices will reduce global growth only by 0.1%. Incidentally, our estimates is slightly lower than the IMF estimates. IMF has an elasticity of 0.015. Ours is 0.010. That was very interesting. Let me just simplify that a little bit. So if there is a 40% increase in oil prices going into 2024, then by your calculations, that would suggest that global economic growth, putting outside every other factor, would lower by 0.4 percentage points. So in other words, if it was supposed to be a 3% global growth, it would be 2.6% global growth. Is that roughly right? Yes, correct. Our current forecast of the global economy is 2.9% for 2024. So if we take into consideration the pessimistic scenario where we said oil prices could increase by 40%, this will lead to reduction in global growth by 0.4 percentage point, meaning that instead of growing at 2.9%, the global economy would grow by 2.5% in 2024. That's interesting because in some respects, when we usually think about this, we usually think, oh my gosh, oil prices are just shot up by 40%. It's going to kill the global economy. And what you're saying is, no, it has an impact, but it's not nearly as significant as probably perceptions would make you think. 
and not nearly as impactful as it was 25 years ago. Yes. Compared to all previous shocks, whether it's the 1973, the 1979, and also there has been in 1990 the invasion of Kuwait. Compared to all these shocks, this time round, the impact will be much smaller. Of course, there are also differences among emerging economies. Significant number of emerging economies rely on oil or other commodities. That's actually a great point. So it's important to think about it on an aggregate basis, but then you do have to disaggregate because there are going to be countries out there or economies that are more dependent on importation of commodities that are going to be hurt worse. Definitely the impact on certain group of countries will be much lower than advanced economies. For example, emerging economies and some of the developing countries rely heavily on the exports of oil and non-fuel commodities. As we indicated before, non-fuel commodity prices move in line with oil prices. So in a sense that higher oil prices will benefit several emerging economies. I have in mind Russia, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, even some of the other Latin American countries, Peru, Colombia, etc., could benefit from higher oil prices. So on average for emerging economies, the impact will still be very small because you have India, China, uh, Philippines, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, which are net importers of oil. Thank you, Garbus, and thank you, Ivan Bagada. This was very, very helpful. And look, you guys really deserve credit for trying to figure this out in very real time in a very, very volatile situation. So now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with Yvonne and Garbus. Two things I'm looking forward to related to this and my one sports fact. First is that our baseline scenario is the horrific war that is happening right now in Israel will stay limited to Israel, which would mean that the spillover impact to other economies is not that great. In fact, actually, the spillover even to the Israeli economy is not that great. However, our pessimistic scenario could harm a number of countries, including Lebanon, which is already in desperate economic straits, Jordan, Israel, and even Iran. Second, the Egyptian economy, which has been struggling and has been weakened, may be the exception to this. Even under a narrow impact scenario, the Egyptian economy, which is already vulnerable, becomes even more vulnerable. A wider scenario or a broader scenario makes it even worse, but it is interesting that the narrow scenario that Garbus and Yvonne pointed out could actually harm Egypt. And third, Commodity prices are unlikely to be impacted very much in the baseline scenario, but if things spread, this could definitely have a much bigger impact on commodity prices. And I think that Garbus made a really good point that it's not just what happens to oil and natural gas, but how that impacts food as well as other commodities. And if it impacts food, we could get ourselves right back to a food crisis in a lot of developing countries. 
as well, of course, as the impact on the overall economy, noting Garbus's point that it's not as great as it used to be. So now the two things that I'm looking forward to, one is to see whether or not the major diplomacy that we are noting around the region and in the world could start having an impact and see some sort of a way back to peace. If you remember Garbus talked about, and Yvonne did too, if you see this war drag on for six months and it stays confined to Israel, then the impact is not that great. Can we find ways to find peace within that six-month period, or does the war become extended and potentially widen out? And next, and this is more about the United States, there is going to be debate, and there is starting to be debate within Congress on how to supply, well, weapons to Israel. That is going to be caught up in next week. We will run into a potential government shutdown scenario. And part of that, the scenario in terms of how to find a budget will be about a package for Israel. So we'll be seeing that taking place very soon here within Washington, D.C. And now my one sports fact. I want to talk about a recent record breaker in the very grueling sport of marathon racing. On November 5th, Tamarat Tola of Ethiopia set a course record to win the New York City Marathon race. In the 26.2-mile race, he ran it in 2 hours, 4 minutes, and 58 seconds, which was 8 seconds faster than the record that had been set a dozen years ago. His record raised two interesting points for me. First is how bloody fast he was running for 26 miles. But beyond that is the dominance of Ethiopian and Kenyan runners in marathon racing, at least on the men's side. I went and looked, and so there are six big marathons that are run every year. Every one of those has been won by a Kenyan or an Ethiopian in 2023. If you look at the New York Marathon, out of the last 22 winners, 16 of them come from Kenya or Ethiopia. If you look at the World Championship of track for marathon running, six out of the last nine marathon runners come from Ethiopia or Kenya. And if you look at the Olympics, four out of the last six come from Ethiopia or Kenya. And by the way, in New York, the second place finisher, came from Kenya. The third place finisher came from Ethiopia. And also the women's winner was Kenya. I wonder how many other sports you have where there's just such dominance by two countries. Anyway, first of all, thanks again to Garbus Nivan for a terrific presentation. And that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener. We can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.